Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18 is where we're at today, uh, continuing in our study through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, I'm excited to be able to travel through the second half of chapter 18, verses 17 through 30 in 1 Samuel. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's my privilege and honor to serve you in the scriptures. I love being able to open God's word and just to see what it has to say. And, and there's just this miraculous thing that happens that we're expecting. I hope you're expecting this. I hope you've come here not to hear an inspirational talk from some ginger. I hope what you've, what you've come here to hear is the word of God. That's what we're hoping and expecting and praying happens. That somehow in the middle of this, as we read God's word, as we open it, as we study it, that God speaks to you. Uh, not, not that I speak to you, but that the Lord speaks to you. That's what we're hoping that happens today. That's what we're expecting happens. So I hope that you're expecting the very same thing. You know, um, I hate perforated lines. They're terrible. No? No, not, not that one? Okay, let me try this one. What did the ocean say to the beach? Nothing. It waved. Right? That was a little bit better. Okay, let me try this one. Why did the scarecrow win the award? Because he was outstanding in his field. That was a good one. Come on, that was a good one. Okay, so those have nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to tell some dad jokes because it's Father's Day. Just, that was the dumbest intro I've ever had. All right. 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 30 today. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll never do that again. All right. Um, Big, our big idea for today is this. When God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Right? Think about that. When God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Okay? Keep that thought in mind as we read this uh, section of 1 Samuel 18, verses 17 through 30, and then we'll go back through and break it down. 1 Samuel 18, 17 says this. When then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened, excuse, excuse me, at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Verse 21, so Saul said, I'll give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you uh, shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly, saying, look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing that a king, uh, to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, uh, told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went uh, and he and his men and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might be, be, become the king's son-in-law. 
Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever David went out, or whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it. God, we thank you that you are our great father, that we can look to you as the one who is perfect and right and holy and just. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us to become more like you today. God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have given us understanding. And we pray that we would worship you together today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to look at this section, 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 30, in three pieces. The first one, 17 through 19, flattery to deceive. The second one, 20 through 25, manipulation to entrap. And the third one, 26 through 30, devotion to the Lord. Now, last week, we covered the first half of chapter 18, and we saw how this um, envy and self-seeking had crept into the heart of Saul. And the result of that envy and self-seeking was that a murderous thought was planted into Saul's mind, and he actually tried to murder David twice by pinning him to the wall with a spear. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the, the, that didn't work, and so now Saul sort of shifted away from that to trying to set up scenarios that will get David killed. David's outmatched. David's outgunned, and David is outclassed in every single way except one. There's one way in which he's not outclassed and outmatched and outgunned, his humble trust in God. This single thing sets David on a completely different course, gives David completely different access to a, a higher power than Saul could ever have uh, at his disposal. You see, he lived by a simple principle that we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says this, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? You see, this principle that we're, that's laid out in Romans 8 wasn't read by David, but it was truly lived by David. That he understood, if I can trust in God, if I can hope in God, if my, if my dependence isn't on my ability, my strategy, my ingenuity, my strength, my might, then God can come through and he gets all the glory for it. Remember God, that, that when, even when David was talking about this with Saul in chapter 17, about how he had killed a lion and a bear, he said the Lord delivered them into his hand. Not that I'm so tough and awesome and I have this cool strategy. He said, God did this and I'll defeat this giant the same way. And so David has this humble trust in the Lord to draw near to God. It didn't matter who was against him, whether it was a giant in the battlefield or the king of a nation, because he knew God was for him. And if we know God is for us, then, then who can be against us? And if they are, who cares, right? Who cares who's against you? Here's the reality. Here's the principle that I want you to grasp. Humble faith positions you correctly to experience God's grace. Humble faith positions you correctly to experience God's grace. It's not that God's grace isn't there. It's not that God's grace isn't flowing. It's that oftentimes we are not positioned under the flow to receive it. Does that make sense? 
And sometimes we think of God's grace like this thing that he sort of measures out. And he's like, well, I'll give a little bit to you, but I don't have enough to give to them. And so I got to be careful not to give too much away. And well, I gave you some yesterday, so you're going to have to wait a week. And then I'll give you some maybe later on. That's just not how it is at all. God's grace is like Niagara Falls. It's this massive torrent that's filled with power, has way more than you could ever imagine. And all you need to do is get under it. That you don't have to try to achieve it. You don't have to somehow work your way into getting uh, this position of favor with God. You already have it through Jesus. His death, his burial, his resurrection takes your shame upon himself and instead he gives you his standing before God. So you already have standing before God. All you have to do is access it through humble faith. That's it. Through humility, willingness to exalt the Lord, you gain access to this. You see, the difference in experiencing this overflow of God's grace is not God's preference that he prefers some people over others. It's not true. We can tend to think that. You look at their life and it's like, man, God is just, he's just blessing them so much. God's grace isn't on them because of his preference, nor is it not on you because of indifference. He just doesn't care. That's not true. We tend to think that way, but it's just not true. The difference is humble faith. You see, this same grace that flows to David is available to Saul. But by Saul's rebellion, he positions himself outside of it. His refusal to repent, his refusal to take responsibility for himself, positions him outside of the grace of God instead of under the flow of the grace of God. So all of that is kind of an introductory thought uh, for us to grasp this concept. Uh, so let's look at this first piece together. Flattery to deceive, verses 17 through 19. Look back at verse 17. It says this, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you today as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. So you see, here what we, what we see is we're picking up sort of in the middle of a, a train of thought. And what this essentially is, is that Saul calls a meeting with David, and it's kind of to pick up old business. If you remember from chapter 17, I think it was around verse 25, Saul you know, made this promise, if anyone kills Goliath, then you know, he's going to have riches, his family's going to be free from taxes, and he's going to get to marry my daughter. And so you know, it's kind of like he calls this meeting, hey, you, you took care of the giant, so let's deal with this old issue of you know, becoming my, uh, of, of you know, me giving my daughter away to you. Now on its surface, it seems like Saul has a change of heart. It's, it's kind of like Saul is saying, you know, David, I didn't mean to kill you. I'm sorry I threw spears at you. How about you marry my daughter? son. You know, like, that's kind of what it seems like on its surface. But this is, this flattery is a veiled attempt at getting David to go the way that Saul wants. It's not a change of heart. This isn't a change of attitude. This isn't somehow repentance within the heart of Saul. This is deeper rebellion. This is deeper depravity that Saul is plunging into because now he's going into deception in order to try to weave some sort of tale and manipulate David, even using his own daughter as a tool to do so. You see, the previous terms of killing Goliath have now changed. Did you see that there in verse 17? He says, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Wait, wait, wait. Remember, remember the previous term? Kill the giant that you were too afraid of uh, to go out and fight on your own. I did that. I, I guess, you know, that's not enough. Now it's changed to where now that, that has become this thing that merely opens the door for David to do more valiant stuff and prove himself. 
You see, what this shows us is the tactic of some leaders. Some leaders, insecure leaders, poor leaders, they always change the goals. They always move the goalposts. There's always more to do. That, that they set the goal here, and then when you get close or you achieve that goal, they don't celebrate that with you. Instead, they go, oh, yeah, we got to move it over here now. And, and they change it that way as well. That they, they, they move things in, uh, in order to keep everyone guessing all of the time, and it's because of their own insecurity and their own poor leadership. They use encouragements and compliments only as tools for manipulation, they don't just encourage people or compliment people just because they want to be an encouragement. Think about that, not just in terms of what you've had experienced with you. Think about that in terms of how you deal with people. How, how easy is it for you to give out encouragement? How easy is it for you to give out compliment? Do you only encourage when you're trying to get something out of somebody else? Do you compliment in order to receive a compliment back? Hey, you're looking pretty, pretty nice today. You're, you're, have you been at the gym or you know whatever, and you're hoping that they say the same thing? back to you or whatever. You know, like, why do you give compliments? Why do you, why do you do that? Is it just to build people up? Or is there some sort of hidden motive? Because that's what's in the heart of Saul here. Now, notice this, the phrase there, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Do you see that, that phrase there? This phrase is actually a carefully crafted three-pronged manipulation by Saul. This, is, this statement is, it's just full of, of manipulation, all throughout it. And he's trying to get David to go his way. And, and so he's having trouble with it. He's, he's having trouble setting up the scenario. And so he uses this here. I know how I'm going to do it here. I'm going to phrase it this way. So he says the first thing that he uses in this three-pronged manipulation is first patriotism. He says, hey, be valiant. David, be valiant. You were valiant before. You took, it, you took down the giant. Man, the, the enemy is still out there. The enemy is still pressing the attack. David, your country needs you. David, your country needs you to fight and, and to take up arms and to go take out the enemy. Man, we need you, David. But not only that, he says, don't not only be valiant, but he says, be valiant for me. The second one is loyalty. David, not only does the country need you, but do this for me, your king. Aren't you loyal to your king? Don't you want to honor the king that the Lord has established in this country? Don't you want to fight loyally for not only your country, but also for your king? And then the third part of the manipulation is, notice it there at the end, love for God. Fight the Lord's battles. It's, David, it's not just my battle. It's not just the country's battle. This is actually a spiritual battle. And you're a godly young man. You want to honor the Lord. So let's do this. Let's go this way and let's, let's do this thing. You see, this targets every piece of all of the good things that are within David's heart that he wants to do. And it's pushing him into a manipulative situation. That's what Saul's trying to do. He's doing this. And how do we know that? Well, because there's more words in verse 17. See that there? For we're given insight into the, the heart behind why Saul's even saying this. Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul decided, I can't kill this kid. God seems to be with him. I throw spears at him and he matrix moves around him or whatever, and I just can't pin him to the wall. So you know what? I'm going to say you go fight the enemy and man, maybe one of them will end up killing him or maybe just a random arrow will fly through the air and strike him and that'll take him out or whatever. Uh, that, that this is some true motivation in the heart of Saul. He just really wants to kill David. So verse 18, so David said to Saul, 
Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be considered son-in-law, uh, so that I should be son-in-law to the king? You see, David is completely naive to the entire plot. He has no, no idea what's going on. You see, the reason David can't see the plot unfolding, though, it's not because of stupidity, right? It's not that he's just too dumb to get it. It's because of humility. He sees this from the perspective of, I don't deserve this. Why, why should I think that I have rights to this? You see, there are two attitudes that could have dominated David's heart. One is entitlement, basically saying, yeah, you owe me. Why did this take so long, bro? Remember that whole giant? You want a you dowry for your daughter? Go out in the field of Elah and look for the nine-foot body. Try that. Hey, there's my dowry. You know, he, he could have said, I'm entitled to this. You already promised this. You just haven't followed through. He could have had that attitude, or he could have had the attitude of suspicion, uh, remember a couple days ago when you were throwing spears at me? Why all of a sudden the change of heart? Why do you want me to be your son-in-law all of a sudden? Uh, what, what's going on within you? But, but David wouldn't do this. Instead, David's flattered. He, say, he basically says, I'm nobody from nowhere. Like, why, why in the world? I don't deserve this. Why would, you, why would you want me? I'm not a valid candidate. You see, David doesn't think he's someone amazing or someone deserving. He's just like, man, I understand this whole you know, royalty thing, and you got to pick somebody better than me. So David overlooks what would dominate most of our thoughts. How? How does he do that? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, we actually covered this uh, on Wednesday night at our Wednesday night service. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 7 says this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. David was loving to Saul. He was willing to do this. He was willing to bear, believe, hope, and endure with Saul. You see, eventually David would stop trusting Saul, but not until he had no other choice. Not until he gave him option after option after option and opportunity to make things right. And even then, David, David even then fights for Saul to do what's right. Even when it's, it's, it's sure and certain in David's mind that Saul is just out to get me, he's out to kill me, and he has opportunity, we'll see later on, to kill Saul, and he just doesn't do it because he's just, he just wants Saul to repent. He wants him to do what's right. Even though Saul, we see here in this chapter, becomes the enemy of David, David refused to become the enemy of Saul. I won't be your enemy, Saul. You see, God leverages David's genuine humility here to save his life, to get him out of these situations that would put him in, in this position of danger. But verse 19, the plot wasn't going, getting anywhere. So uh, what does Saul do? He gives her away to another guy. And notice it says there, when she should have been given to David, he's like, all right, uh, Adriel, you're up, bro. All right, second piece here, not only flattery to deceive, but manipulation now to entrap. Verse 20, now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So now Saul, he's going to step it up. He's going to step it up here. He, he's, he's just tried to, to kind of use some flattery and deception in order to get David to go his way. It didn't really work. And so now he just needs the right scenario to be set up. And, and it just so happens that one of his other daughters, Michal, has been spending some time with David. And they've been getting to know each other. It seems that way because notice it says there in verse 20, uh, it says, uh, they told Saul. So it seems like 
you know, David and uh, Michal have, have come together a little bit. Maybe they've been getting to know one another, and they tell Saul. Now, in verse 20, we're, we're told here that she loved David. She loved David. I, I remember, I, I told this story on Wednesday, so for those of you who are here on Wednesday, I'm sorry, you get to hear it twice. But um, I remember when I was first married to Micah. We were married for about six months. Uh, we're newlyweds, you know, we're... We're just, you know, enjoying some of that first year of marriage together. And we were driving, driving along. I think my sister was even in the car with us. And as we're driving along, I just had this thought, this epiphany came to me. And I said to Micah, you know, when we got married, I didn't even love you. It went over about as well as you think, right? She's like, what? She's totally offended. I'm like, how could you be offended? But I'm just, I'm expressing my love to you. And then I'm I'm just a moron. So anyway, so I'm, I'm explaining this to her, and she's, she's mad. I think my sister hit me. I, I don't know what happened, but it was like, it was a, a bad moment uh, for me. And so then as they explained what they heard, I was like, oh, my goodness, I have just plunged into a hole of terribleness. And so then I started trying to figure out how to say it. And what I actually was trying to say was, now that we've been married for a little while, the way I understand love today is vastly different than what I thought it was before we were married, Right? And I would say the same thing today, right? The way that I, now that we've been married for almost 19 years, uh, the way that I understand marriage today versus the way I understood it when we were married for six months, vastly different. So vastly different that it's almost like that wasn't even love, okay? That's kind of what I was trying to describe. But I, I you know, I crashed and burned pretty terribly. So um, men, don't say that. There's a, there's a tip for you. But, you know, this right here, when it says that, that Mikal loved Love, David, this is more of an attraction or an infatuation than it is love, right? This is, for those of you who've been married any length of time, you know what I'm talking about, right? You think you're in love previous to this, but it's like, mm, you don't even really know each other, right? You're just kind of like, you see all the good parts, none of the bad parts. You don't know all the, the stench of the morning and what that's like. And, you know, not you, me, um, <laughs> She's like, what? What are you talking about? I'm confessing my sins, not yours, okay? Just imagine if you had to be married to me. Anyway, um, you never know what I'm going to say. So, so she's more infatuated than she is in love. That, that's, it's really what I don't know what she's attracted to. Maybe she was attracted to his courage. She, this is the guy that took down Goliath. I want that guy. That's, that's my man. You know, that's what she's saying. Or maybe it's that he has, he's, he's courageous. Maybe it's his fame. Maybe it's his good looks because he's a ginger. I don't know what it is, but she's, she's attracted to something within him, and it's not actually love. But here's the thought. Attraction is good enough to start a relationship, but it's not good enough to keep one going. Right? You need more than attraction. There's going to come a day when you're hot isn't enough to keep you married. Okay? That there's, there's got to be more than that. And it's not to say like you're going to get old and ugly. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there comes a day when there's got to be something deeper than just this superficial thing. There's got to be more or there's nothing holding the relationship together. There's nothing of substance getting it together. Now, if this dating relationship goes to marriage, which, by the way, single people, that's the entire point, right? If you're not dating for the point of marriage, you're doing it wrong. You know what you're doing if, you, if you're dating without the, the marriage being the end goal? 
practicing divorce. That's all you're doing. I'm going to get together with this person because I find them attractive, and I'm going to hang out with them for a little while, and then when they do something that annoys me or I don't like it, or I just, want to, I just don't want to be tied down anymore, I'm out. That's, you're practicing divorce. That's all you're doing. The point of dating is to go toward marriage. You're, you're, you're evaluating, is this a candidate for marriage? And you should be attracted to them, right? That's a good thing. It's not to say, you know, just find someone who you're the least attractive to uh, and just say, you know, let's get married. That's not what it's saying at all. But the point of it is to say that there got to be something more than that. you got to be attracted to more than their image, and you've got to be attracted to more than their potential, who they could be. Oh, if I just, if I spent time with them, if I was able to be with them, I could change them into this. No, you can't. <laughs> you don't have that power. Only Jesus does. And the more you try, the more frustrated you'll become because they won't be made in your image. You're not God. That's not your goal. It's not your job. It's not what you were there to do. Now, whatever she was attracted to in David, it was not ever, uh, it wasn't at this point, and it never grew into a heart for the Lord, David's heart for the Lord. How do we know that? Well, if you go ahead into 2 Samuel chapter 6, you see that she's actually mad at David for worshiping the Lord. Because he was undignified in his worship to the Lord, and she's mad about it. She had no intention on, on being in on this relationship on a godly spiritual level. And so she ends up actually becoming this snare to David that we read about in, in a little bit. Now, look at verse 21. It says this, So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. Now, Saul's plan to kill David is revitalized through this young love. And so here's his chance to lay out and spring his trap. Here's his opportunity. It's presented itself to him again. Now, this word snare, it's the idea that she's the bait. That's, that's the concept of snare. It, it's, like, it's like fishing, right? You, you, don't, you don't throw a hook in the water and think you're going to catch a fish. You've got to bait the hook, you got to put something on there that's going to entice the fish. you got to put something on there that looks like something that they want to eat. And so, too, it is with Saul. Saul can't say, hey, David, I want you to die because Philistines kill you. So go fight Philistines. That's not going to work. So what's he going to do? He's going to get to the Philistine thing through his daughter. He's going to use her as bait. So he's throwing that bait out in the water, and he's going to wiggle it around and try to get David to bite. You see, the whole thing is that you make, you make the lure look like something that the fish wants, but there's the hook hidden inside, and the fish doesn't even realize that it's caught until it's too late. It's just clever deception. That's all fishing is. So if you're a fisherman, you're a liar, right? That's just, I'm just kidding. Happy Father's Day. Anyway, there's two potential ways to see this idea of she becomes a snare to David. Number one is Saul knew she was crazy. And he, and he knew, if I give this woman to him, she's going to just wreck him. That's one way to view this, right? That he raised a psycho daughter, and I, I may or may not have one of those. I got a few. You can guess at which one it might be, but I'm just kidding. I love all of them. They're like, so, man, I'm just not doing well today. So anyway, maybe it's that. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe it's that his hatred of David overrides his parental duty and love for his daughter to where he's willing to use her to try to get to him. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But this is what's going on here. Verse 22. Verse 22. So Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, 
The king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Verse 23, so Saul's servants spoke those words. Notice it says there, in the hearing of David. So it seems as though they sort of were having this conversation about how awesome David is and how much everyone loves David, including the king. And they did it in such a way that, that it was within earshot of David and he sort of over, overheard the conversation and was drawn in that this is what's going on here. He, he's this, Saul's this great manipulator, a great fisherman. And so he starts by going to David and restating his intention to make David his son-in-law. But last time, flattery wasn't enough, so he goes further. So he has a secret meeting with some specific servants of his, some trusted guys, and he gives them a really specific script. He's wiggling the bait. He's saying, hey, look, here, here let's draw him in. Notice David's response there in verse 23. It says, uh, and David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king, a king's son-in-law, seeing I'm a poor and lightly esteemed man? Now, now, David's response here and the previous response, when you look at this, it seems to be over the top, doesn't it? It's like, David, come on, bro. Like, nobody's that humble. Like, what is going on with you that you, that you think of, of yourself this way? But it can either be false humility, that he's projecting humility from a place of arrogance and self-preservation, or it's true humility, that he's got this genuine sense of understanding who he is, and it's devoid of arrogance and self-preservation. And as we see this, this story unfold, this narrative unfold, it's very clear this is true humility within the heart of David. He really thinks that he, should, he doesn't deserve this place of honor. He's, I'm just nobody from nowhere. you got to find somebody else. This doesn't make any sense. Even if I'm attracted to your daughter and you know, maybe that there's some sparks going, I just don't see how it all could come together. Verse 24. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, they're, they're going back to Saul, in this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, you shall say to David, the king doesn't desire doubt, any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. They were given another insight into this whole manipulative scheme. Now, Saul knows he's got David at this point. As soon as, as, soon as David's here, as soon as he's moving toward the bait, he's like, I got him. He's right where I want him to be. David's response reveals that he wants to do it. He says, I would marry her. I think she's great. I, I, I think it would be an amazing relationship. But he says, I don't have the money, and I don't feel worthy. And so Saul, he says, he gives David a task to both prove his worth and replace the money issue. Now, the money issue is a dowry. Right? We read this idea of a dowry. A dowry essentially is uh, three things in, in this ancient culture. It's a payment for the loss, right? So, so in, this, in this culture, uh, family was a big deal. And the more kids you had, the more hands you had to help the family do all the things, right? So all the stuff that we have modern conveniences for, including, you know, water, uh, you just turn on a faucet, and laundry, and cooking, and cleaning, and all those things. You have kids, and they all contribute to that. So if you marry someone's daughter, you're literally taking someone out of their household that was contributing, and so it's a payment for that. Secondly, it's a combination of life insurance and alimony, 
right? It's like, if I die, she's going to have to go back to you and your house, so here's some life insurance in advance. Or if for some reason their, their relationship dissolves, she's got to go back to his, the dad's house, and so here's the payment in advance. And then thirdly, it's a cultural token to say, I'm really committed. Like I'm actually in. It's like, guys, when you buy that really expensive ring, you're like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to afford this thing. And, and you give it to her. That's, it's like saying I'm really in, right? It's not, I'm not playing, playing games with my heart, you know? Uh, but, uh, uh, I don't remember who's saying that. I, was, I think it was the theologian Backstreet Boys or something. Um, but you're saying I'm really in, I'm really doing this. I'm not just, I'm not just saying I'm going to, I'm, I'm really going to do this. And so that's what this is. And so you know, Saul gives David a way to do this. And so he says, here's what I want. I want 100 Philistine foreskins. If you don't know what that is, use the dictionary, all right? Um, figure it out. Basically, what this is is a win-win for Saul and a lose-lose for David. This scenario, there's no way for Saul to lose and there's no way for David to win. That, that's what this scenario is. It's like this. David, uh, for, for, excuse me, Saul he looks like the good guy, right? There's no dowry required. You know, I'm just, I'm going to be a good guy about this. I know you can't afford it. I know you're a humble man from a humble place in life. I'm a king. You couldn't really afford my dowry anyway. I'll just waive the dowry. I'm going to be looking like a good guy. He also entices David's loyalty uh, by saying, kill the king's enemies. He entices David into this. He entices David spiritually by saying, hey, here's the issue. I want you to go get those uncircumcised Philistines, right? The circumcision concept is that it is uh, the, the sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. And he's, it's like saying, these are the people who have abandoned God. They want nothing to do with God. They're attacking us. And so, so David, it's your job to just eradicate these guys anyway. So let's get a hundred of these guys, the, these, uh, 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 these Philistines, let's take them out and you can prove it to me by circumcision. Now, Saul could have said anything, right? He could have said, bring me a hand, bring me a, a hundred skulls, bring me, uh, bring me a scalp, bring you whatever he wanted. Um, but he says uh, he, wants, he wants that. It's also a, a setup for David for certain failure. Go kill a hundred guys. Right now, I don't know how tough you are, but maybe you could take on two or three guys. Not a hundred, right? Like you're going to have a hard time with a hundred dudes. Uh, and so this is, this is a certain failure for David. But also, if David succeeds at this, he's going to become a target of the Philistines. Not just for killing these guys, but remember the Philistines worship false gods and they think that this, this whole covenant of circumcision between the, the uh, people of Israel and God, it's this weird ritual that they go through. And so David doing this to Philistine men would be desecrating their dead bodies. Think about that. Don't we get riled up if the bodies of our soldiers are desecrated by the enemy? It stirs us up. We're like, yep, let's just nuke the whole place, right? Like everyone gets amped up about that. And so that's exactly what's going to happen. There's no way for David to win in this scenario. You see, this, this whole scheme for Saul, it's a spiritual gift, but not from the Holy Spirit, right? This is a James 3 from last week. This is demonic wisdom that, that is being given to Saul, and he's playing right into the hands of the enemy, not only do we see flattery to deceive, manipulation to entrap, but also, thirdly, devotion to the Lord in verses 26 through 30. Look at verse 26. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Okay, I'm sure you're thinking, bro, wake up. 
Like, what are you thinking? You're excited to be, okay, what, uh, in David's mind, this is, this is great, and it's a done deal, right? There's no way 100 Philistines are going to stand a chance against me. There's no way he could f- fail at this, uh, at taking out the Lord's enemies, because it fit right with David's God-given mission. It's what, what God had given David to do, was to wipe out the enemies of the Lord. And so he's like, yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. Now, David's got three options to get the foreskins, okay? Number one, he could ask nicely. It's a choice. It's not a good choice, but he could. He could also convert them to Judaism, right? You guys become Jews, we'll do the thing, and then, right, so, or he could kill them, right? They're not going to just give these up easily. So really, what you see is there's really only one option. This is, this is the only choice for David. He's got to go out and, and kill these, these guys. But not only, look at verse 27, not only does David succeed, but he doubles the requirement says, therefore, David arose and went, uh, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins. This is a really funny detail to me, and gave them in full count. Like, how did that go? He's got a sack, and he's like, one, two, like, there's a lot of things I hope to see, like a video in heaven. This is not one. Like, I don't think anybody wants to rent that video from Heavenly Blockbuster. Um, so uh, that's just, that's funny. Um, so he, he does this, and then it says at the end of verse 27, then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. So they get, they get married. At this moment, Michal becomes David's wife. Verse 28, thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. It's an interesting thing here that, that, Dave, that Saul sees something. It's undeniable in Saul's mind. There's something that's just right at the forefront of his mind. God is with David. Think about this. Jonathan, um, David's, uh, Saul's son, loves David. Now, one of Saul's daughters loves David. Saul can see very clearly God is with David. Do you see what's happening with with Saul right now? Do you see what God's doing? God is trying so hard to get past the hardened heart of Saul. He's trying to break through. Even in all this wickedness and demonic rebellion, God is trying to get his heart. God is trying to wake him up. But notice what Saul does. Look at what it says in verse 29. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. You see... Instead of moving toward the Lord and giving up what he had lost, the kingdom. This is all about Saul being terrified that God's going to strip the kingdom away from him like God promised he would and give it to another that's better than him who is obviously David. He's afraid of that. And so instead of submitting to God's way and submitting to what God wants and choosing repentance and saying, this is, this is all the, the fault of my own sin and this is the consequence of my own sin, instead of that, he hardens his heart further. You see, Saul's response is to dig in deeper to his rebellion instead of choose the route of repentance. And I wonder if that's where some of us might be at today. That we get so wrapped up in wanting our thing, wanting it our way, that we're not willing to see the reason things aren't working and the the reason that things keep falling apart and you're trying to plot and scheme and work the angle and get it to go and it just falls apart again 
It's because God's for you, not against you. It's because God's not giving you that thing because he's trying to bring you to himself to get you to abandon your way and come to his way. Uh, I wonder if there's some that might be thinking along those lines, that the Holy Spirit would be convicting you of that as well. You see, Saul probably didn't think of himself as the villain. He probably thought of himself as the victim. That, that he wasn't the one that was, that was wrong, even though he's the source of his own pain and he's the source of the pain of everybody else around him. He's the, he's the one. It all goes to him. You're making everything a problem. And yet, and yet, he wasn't willing to see it. He wanted to see himself as a victim instead of as the villain. Warren Wearsby says it like this. If David was, was killed in battle, it was the enemy's fault. And if he um, lost a battle but lived, his popularity would wane. But the plan didn't work because David won all the battles. After all, the Lord was with him and the power of God was upon him. Instead of eliminating David or diminishing his popularity, Saul's scheme only made him greater, a greater hero to the people. And this increased Saul's fear of David all the more. To the point to where we read there in verse 29, Saul became David's enemy continually. You see, this is Saul going past the point of no return. That's what this, this moment is. This is where he's, he's plunging so far into this that no matter what God does, it'll never wake Saul up. He's, he's past the point of no return. He's chosen to harden his, heart, harden his heart in rebellion, and it's irrevocable at this point. He's so hard that he will never change. Saul's plan, it, it kind of worked. Look at verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. Well, do you think maybe, you know, just 200 of their men were just killed and desecrated, right? They're, they're probably pretty angry. And guess who's, who's on their, the top of their list? David. David's the guy that they want to take out. So, so Saul's plan kind of works, but it ends up backfiring. Notice it says there, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. Uh, in this, the Philistines are angry with David and they're hunting him, but God's for David. And so even this turns to, God's, turns, uh, to David's favor because God is for him. What a crazy thing. You see, when you set out to honor God with your life, I don't know if you know this yet or not, it's not going to make everybody happy. Right? There's some people that are not going to be excited by your choice to honor the Lord. Not just once when you give your life to Jesus at one time, but as you continue to follow the Lord and you stand up for righteousness and you, you say, this is what's right and this is wrong, when you do that, you're going to look crazy in our culture. Our culture is going to go, something's wrong with you. You're broken. You're mean. You're hateful. You're, you're bigoted. And you're like, I'm not hateful. I don't, I'm not hating anybody. I'm just saying this is right and this is wrong. And it's not me you're disagreeing with. It's Jesus you're disagreeing with, right? But the, the truth is, you get to be the target of that when you stand up for the things of the Lord. Not everybody is going to be happy about it. Not everyone's going to be going for it. You see, I guarantee people will hate you and they will fight you for it. Jesus said it like this in John 15, 20. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. Jesus literally promises you persecution. He literally promises that people will go after you. Why? 
Because, because if you follow him, then people will want their sin instead of want Jesus, and you represent Jesus, so you become their enemy. That's really what it comes down to. So, so don't take it personally. They don't hate you. They hate Christ in you. Why? Because Jesus said in John chapter 3, it's like the light that shines into the darkness. Go, go to a bar at night and turn the lights on and see how many friends you make, right? There's a reason why people want it dark. There's a re- because sin likes to hide in the darkness. That's, that's where it hides. How can you prepare for this? How can you be ready for it? How can you stand against this strong onslaught that's constantly coming against you? Well, what did David do? David had no idea that Saul was coming for him. He had no clue. All he did was submit his life to humbly follow the Lord. And God directed his path all the way through. Even when Saul springs his trap and the trap worked, right? David's out there. He's, he's going out to try to, to get these, these uh, uh, Philistines. And, and, and Saul's like, yes, they're finally going to kill him. Even though the trap worked, God was still for him. God was still protecting him. It's not by scheming. It's not by deceiving. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 says it like this. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And um, at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. David did not seek to exalt himself, but instead looked to humble himself. And you and I must be willing to do the same. Take the low seat of, of hum- in humility that specifically exalts Jesus. When you do that, you put yourself in that position under God's grace. Then it doesn't matter who's against you. He's your savior. He's your Lord. He's your God. All you have to do is humbly submit to him. So so will you do that? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to submit your life to Jesus that way? I pray that you are. Not Not just one time. Maybe for some of you, you've never done it before. And that today would be the first day that you would do that. You would, you would recognize your sinfulness and your need for Jesus to forgive you. Or maybe for others, you need to come back to that. That you've kind of kicked Jesus off the throne and now you need to put him back on it and you need to dethrone yourself, make him Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to read it, to see what it is that you have to speak into our lives. And we pray that your, your name would be exalted Lord Jesus, would you bring us to the end of ourselves that we can in humility exalt you and see you glorified. Father, we love you because you first loved us. We want to, um, to be good stewards of your grace. And so, Lord, help us to not only receive your grace, but to be dispensers of it as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.